In our reading from the Old Testament book of Exodus today, Moses is present with God on Mount Sinai, and God is giving Moses very specific directions for how the Ark of the Covenant is to look and function. This reading is five chapters after God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And if we were to keep reading into the following chapters, we would see God continuing to give instructions for how to build the items needed for worship in a new tabernacle, which is actually a very elaborate tent, a portable worship space that was appropriate for a people wandering in the desert. As I read this morning, I draw your attention to the artist rendering on the ark on the cover of the songbook. I encourage you to look at this artwork as I read the passage. They should make me a sanctuary so I can be present among them. You should follow the blueprints that I will show you for the dwelling and for all its equipment. Have them make an acacia wood chest. It should be 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Cover it with pure gold inside and out, and make a gold molding all around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Make acacia wood poles and cover them with gold. Then put the poles into the rings on the chest sides and use them to carry the chest. The poles should stay in the chest rings. They shouldn't be taken out of them. Put the covenant document that I will give you into the chest. Then make a cover of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Make two winged heavenly creatures of hammered gold one for each end of the cover. Put one winged heavenly creature at one end and one winged heavenly creature at the other. Place the winged heavenly creatures at the cover's two ends. The heavenly creatures should have their wings spread out above, shielding the cover with their wings. The winged heavenly creatures should face toward each other on the center's cover. Put the gold cover on top of the chest and put the covenant document that I will give you inside the chest. There I will meet with you. From there above the cover, from between the two winged heavenly creatures that are on top of the chest containing the covenant, I will deliver to you all that I command you concerning the Israelites. So the word of God for the people of God. God. I was flipping through the TV channels a few weekends ago and I came across... Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, I hadn't seen that movie in a long time, but I knew I was preaching this sermon, so I stopped a few minutes to watch, you know, purely for research purposes. (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark originally came out in theaters in June of 1981, which was the summer before my senior year in high school. And in all my years of going to church throughout my youth and childhood, I can't say that I've ever heard a sermon preached on this passage, on Exodus 25, the instructions for building the ark. In fact, I can't really remember much being said at all at church about the Ark of the Covenant, except maybe something about it being the place where the Ten Commandments were stored. So when I saw the movie for the first time as a 17-year-old, with its mythology surrounding the ark, the ark's mystical powers, the ability for the ark to be used as an instrument of victory over one's enemies, that was all new information. 
Now that I have watched it again as an adult, I can confirm that nowhere in the movie is it suggested that the art's primary function is so that God can dwell among the people or as an instrument to communicate with God's people. Here's the scene as it's set up a few verses before the passage I just read. Moses and Aaron and several of the elders of Israel have gone up the mountain. And for six days, God's presence surrounds the mountain as a cloud, and they are in awe, and they worship God together. And then on the seventh day, the Lord called out to Moses from the cloud. And so Moses enters the cloud and is in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights, which is just Bible talk for he was there for a really long time. What happens during that time is hidden from us. We only know that Yahweh speaks and Moses listens. God speaks. God announces God's will and thereby reveals something of God's own self. It's God saying to Moses, this is what's important to me. John Holbert says this about that scene. I'm struck by how primitive and ancient this all feels. How long has it been since I have seen and heard my God? How long since I have been struck dumb by the power of revelation, standing in the presence of the Holy One? How pathetic are my puny efforts in word and song and silence to find a way to that creator? When have I last been in awe of God? I really have no easy or satisfactory answers to these questions. I only know that my worship has too long been void of awe, real fear in the Hebrew sense of the world. Have I become so controlled, so programmed in the possible responses that I can give in worship that I have driven awe away? Am I too fearful of awe? Though I cannot answer these queries, I sense deep within a need for something genuinely divine. According to our scripture today, God was with the Israelites, but it begs the question, is God still with us? Did you notice as I was reading the Exodus passage where God said he would meet and speak to the people? It wasn't from inside the ark. It wasn't from the lid. It was from above the lid, from the empty space in between the angels whose wings are covering the top of the ark. That's where God will come and talk with Moses, from the in-between. And what did that look like, I wonder? Was God a bright ball of light pulsing as God spoke? Would a little tiny cloud appear like it did on the mountain with lightning and thunder bursting forth? This is a momentous occasion in human history, at least for the Israelites. There's been a shift in where God wants to be. God is no longer only on the mountain. God is on the move on top of a box with poles that can be carried from place to place. God will now be where the people are. The ark is God saying, take me with you. That's important to a wandering people in the wilderness like the Israelites, that you can have access to God wherever you are. But I think it's important to us too. Where do you go looking for God? 
assuming you don't have your own Ark of the Covenant, that is? Is it in the empty, in-between spaces? Do you expect to find God in the same place every time? Is it in the wilderness? Is it here at church, in worship? Or have we lost our ability to access God, to hear what God is trying to say to us? Did we lose the ability to communicate with God when the Ark of the Covenant disappeared? Now, I know where I feel closest to God and when I feel closest to God. And it's no surprise here. It's in the music. The marriage of melody and harmony and rhythm and words and textures and volume levels all coming together to create a worshipful, God-touching moment. And sometimes it's just a fleeting moment, a glimpse of glory, and then just as quickly it's gone. I once heard music described as music is how we decorate time. But I think it's more than just decoration because there are songs that stay with me long after worship is over, shaping and changing me well after the song has ended. The same is true for the time we spend worshiping God together too. It's not decorated time. It's, means, it's time as a means of grace. The worshiping assembly is a sign that all time is expectant. We come expecting something, and therefore grace-filled, redeemed for the sake of discipleship and growth. In a word, all time becomes sacrament, liturgical time, in which we offer the work of our discipleship to God for our neighbors, the God who has given us this special time. The instructions God gave to Moses are vital for understanding the mission of God's people in the world. Imagine that in the context of covenant at Mount Sinai, God should take care to think through, speak about, and propose modes and procedures whereby Israel can count upon with certainty a rendezvous with the Holy One, reliable contact with the mystery of God. This passage invites us to imagine that meeting and to receive the offer of presence given in the text. Frederick Buechner wrote, Like Moses, we come here as we are. And like him, we come as strangers and exiles in our way because wherever it is that we truly belong, whatever it is that is truly home for us, we know in our hearts that we have somehow lost it and gotten lost. Something is missing from our lives that we cannot even name. Something we know best from the empty place inside us all where it belongs. We come here to find what we have lost. We come here to acknowledge that in the best, in terms of the best we could be, we are lost and that we are helpless to save ourselves. Bigner didn't say empty space, but rather empty place. Is he on to something? Does God only show up where there is nothing? And is empty even the same as nothing? I don't think so, because we can feel empty or we can feel nothing. And those are two very different things to me. To feel nothing is to be numb, 
devoid of caring. To feel empty is to ache, to be hungry, to want that which is empty to be filled with something. So I'll ask the question again. Is God still with us? Maybe the answer is in verse 8. They should make me a sanctuary, God says, so I can be present among them. Think about what this means for a minute. What was Israel's primary problem when they were in Egypt? You and I may think that their primary problem is that they were in slavery and needed to be rescued. And that was a significant problem, but that wasn't their main problem. Their main problem is that God wasn't living with them. God wants to dwell with his people. We were meant to live in his presence, and God will do everything possible to make his home among us. And not only does God choose to live with us, but God goes to great lengths to do so. If you keep reading from Exodus 25 into chapter 31, you learn that there were elaborate plans and materials used to construct the tabernacle. And there's a lot of skilled workmanship that goes into the construction of the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle is God's portable sanctuary in which he can live with his people and move with them as they travel. And that's good news. God is incredibly relational. Now, suppose I came to you after the service today and said, hey, what are you doing on Wednesday night? You likely wouldn't enjoy getting a question like that because you would want to know why I was asking before you answered. Do I want a favor from you? Do I want to enlist you in some project? Now suppose you found a way to delicately ask my purpose and I said, I can't think of anything more I would want to do than to spend time with you. There's nothing that would make me happier than to enjoy the privilege of spending a moment with you. Now, you would know that my purpose is relational, and you would have to decide whether that is a good thing or not. You'd have to decide whether me offering my friendship to you is something that improves your life or takes away from it. But now imagine we're having that conversation with God. Are we be, as we, and we begin to analyze God's motives. Does God want my obedience? Is God waiting for me to get my acts together? What in the world does God want with me? And then imagine the answer coming back. God wants to live with us, spend time with us, and to be our God. Our God is relational. Is God with us? The answer is always yes. God has left the mountain but not in the same way as Elvis has left the building. You know, that's become such a catchphrase that I had to Google it because I wasn't really sure of its original meaning. Elvis has, lost, has left the building was often used by public address announcers at the conclusion of Elvis Presley's concerts in order to disperse audiences who lingered in hopes of an encore or of a chance sighting of the king. So it's really just a kinder way of saying, Go home. The show's over. He is not here anymore. 
But God has left the mountain promises just the opposite. God is with us. God is going with us. God wants to be with us. The show is just getting started. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, we read of how our relational God had more plans in mind for how God would connect with us. Jesus would come as the fulfillment of that relationship. The prophet Jeremiah even gave the Israelites a heads up of God's plans for the future. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors who, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Hearing God's voice, being in God's presence, having a relationship with God, it's what we practice when we come together for worship. Like the goal of covenant, the goal of worship is spiritual communion with the living God. And if our worship aims for anything less than this, it's not really worship. We come to worship to get God. We give our praise and we get God in return. And in the process, it fills our need for something genuinely divine. So may God come in this day and fill those empty spaces and empty places that each of us have. Amen.